Good morning. I was recently drawn by some ducks at Disneyland. I was actually at Disneyland and it had a moment when it wasn't crowded and I wasn't in a hurry. I don't, that doesn't happen very often. As your kids get bigger, it happens. And so I was tooling around on Mark Twain's boat on the Mississippi River. I don't think I've done that since I was two. And so I was leaning over the rail and I was watching some ducks. And I thought, what would it be like to be a duck in Disneyland? I mean, you have no concept of the reality of real duck life. I mean, color is everywhere. It's beautiful. The temperature of the water is perfect, and it never has a dry season. I mean, it's 80 degrees in the middle of the winter and in the middle of the summer. You know, there's music playing all the time and seasonal, too, for you. People are happy. People are perpetually happy, except for toddlers from the eight hours of one to four, right? And if you're ever bored, you can go from Fantasyland to Tomorrowland and back to Frontierland. I mean, if you're, you're nostalgic and you're missing the past, you just head on back to Frontierland. And if you're anxious for the future, you can go on into Tomorrowland. You're never bored. And think about it. Food is always drifting your way. Popcorn, pretzels, chimichanga, <laughs> caramel apple. You could truly get sick, couldn't you? And when, it's, when you're tired, there's perfectly manicured plant life for you to find a little quiet place to nestle under and have a little rest from the sun. Then it's quiet, and you have this peaceful rest, and it all starts all over again tomorrow in another sunny day. It would be great to be a duck in Disneyland, and yet no concept or reality of what it means to be a real duck. And uh, my giggling turned serious when I realized that I often so much want this from my Christianity. If you're like me, many of us came to faith with the idea that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. Although there is truth in that, that wonderful plan we often define with our Western mind. And so, we think that entering the family of God means we've entered the magic kingdom. And even when we see areas of our life where there's distance or damage or dryness, we expect those things to be fixed. You know, we expect the building materials of our lives that are broken to just kind of float our way like popcorn. We expect that as we are being restored, there's going to be beautiful music and people smiling all around us. And it isn't really reality, is it? We think that it should be a happy day as had by all. Again, we want the water clear and and at perfect temperatures. We want revival to happen while we rest in the shade on a sunny day. But we're not ducks in Disneyland. We can't afford to be. We are children of God, brought into his kingdom by the blood of the Lamb, and we are now crusaders for the kingdom. God has called us in our lives to be a part of his revival and rebuilding and restoration of our own lives and of the church so that we will infect this kingdom, so that we will take it over. His kingdom has landed and he has called us to this great campaign of sabotage, as C.S. Lewis says. We are to invade this earthly kingdom for the glory of God. It is a struggle. It will be a struggle because it's a spiritual thing. It's not a happy day in the park. In Nehemiah 2, we'll see this reality played out. The rebuilding of the wall, again, represents the rebuilding of the community of God. This is a place where God is going to dwell and, again, be the light to the world, to evidence his glory and his power and his ability to restore and rebuild and revive his people. 
The Israelites cannot afford to act like ducks in Disneyland and just wait for things to come to them and expect everyone to smile and be happy and music to play. It's going to be a spiritual thing, so therefore it is going to be a struggle. Whenever we step out into a spiritual revival or a spiritual restoration, a spiritual rebuilding, there will be opposition because it is a spiritual thing. It's not a day in the park. We are not ducks in Disneyland. We are kingdom crusaders. And when we crusade, there is opposition. I love what one commentary says about Nehemiah 2, uh, J.G. McConville. Underlying the action of this chapter is a conflict between good and evil. Everything that serves the interests of the return exiles, the king's decision, the rebuilding of the walls, is good. All that tends toward or is the product of their loss, the broken walls, Nehemiah's grief, the aspirations of Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem, is evil. The clear implication in verse 10 is that the opposition to Judah from these powerful leaders is a spiritual thing. Remember verse 10 says they were greatly displeased because somebody was caring for the Israelites. When we care about God's church, when we care about the restoration in our own lives and the rebuilding in our own lives, spiritually speaking, and when we care about that kingdom work that's being done on earth, there is opposition. It's a spiritual thing. Our restoration, our rebuilding, our revival is a spiritual thing because it's to reveal God's glory in this earthly kingdom. So therefore, we have to let go of our desire, our Western mindset of wanting to be ducks in Disneyland and wanting it to be easy. We have to walk out of those perfectly, cheerfully painted gates and not get our hands stamped. We're not going back. We have to embrace the pain and the problems and the persecution that come with spiritual revival, both individually and for as a church. And again, we get to see this in Nehemiah. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. Spiritual work is painful. Look at the pain God impresses upon Nehemiah. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? There is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild. Again, we see this This evil and this good, this pain, this word pain that Nehemiah is in, is actually the word evil or bad. Nehemiah is wearing on his face the evil that has been done to his people and the pain that it is causing. Remember the the suffering and the affliction and the shame. Restoring and rebuilding and reviving our lives personally leads to pain. When we're called to this kind of spiritual life, for spiritual work, whether it's, again, for us or And for the church in general, calling to come alongside someone else, it will be painful. God burdens Nehemiah to pray for four months and then to keep praying without ceasing. Some commentators talk about him praying, then I prayed to God that it was like an arrow prayer. I don't believe it was an arrow prayer. I think he was continually praying all the time. And he was praying based on how he had been praying for four months, which was how God led him to pray. Nehemiah needed four months at least to really get the impact of what God wanted to say to him. 
And some say that the travels to get to Jerusalem would have been another four months. So we had eight months of prayer and weeping and fasting to feel the weight of what God wanted. Listen to what J.I. Packer says about real prayer. For real prayer, prayer that is, that centers on the hollowing of God's name and doing the will of God, right there is real prayer, has among its other effects a reflex effect. It purifies the heart. It purges our attitudes and motives. It melts down all our self-centeredness, self-sufficiency, and self-reliance that as fallen creatures we bring to it. Ooh, ladies, listen to this. Real prayer that centers on the hollowing of God's name. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, that are hollows on Jesus' name, God's name, and doing his will has among its other effects a reflex effect. It purifies the heart, it purges our attitudes and motives, it melts down all self-centeredness, self-sufficiency, and self-reliance. It moves us from Disneyland to the real world. God so emptied Nehemiah and connected him to his own heart that Nehemiah wears on his face the weight of what is happening to the people. Now, commentators say that Nehemiah probably would have been fully bearded. So it's not like he made his face frown so that the king would ask him a question. No, he has prayed so intently, he's wept so much, he's fasted so much, that the pain shows in his eyes. It shows in his face. The king calls it a badness, an evil. He sees it on Nehemiah. Abraham Lincoln says, after 40, every man gets the face he deserves. (laughs) Our faces reflect much. And as I look into the mirror and I'm seeing everything go south (laughs) and the wrinkles, I pray that my aging is because of weeping over God's church and not because of careless living. Soaked in prayer. Surrendered to the purposes of God, Nehemiah embraces pain. He doesn't waddle off to fantasy land. He asks the king for the very things that God lays upon his heart. He's given courage to risk his life. This is a psychotic king. This is a crazy thing to ask. But he does it because God has told him so and he will obey God. He asked this king to reverse a policy which Persian kings do not do, his own policy. But maybe in those four months of prayer, because he died to all of his self-sufficiency and his selfishness, self-centeredness, God was able to impress upon Nehemiah's heart the truth of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever it wills. God provides abundantly through this king. And so Nehemiah goes on and asks for the provision that he knows God is going to grant. If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortresses of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house I shall occupy. I love that part. (laughs) And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now the king had sent me officers of the army and horsemen. Nehemiah was given every provision he needed plus. I don't see anywhere that Nehemiah asked for an army. 
But the king sends an army on top of everything that he asks for because the good hand of God was upon him. God's goodness was even greater than Nehemiah could imagine. Nehemiah is given more because the project's God's, not Nehemiah's. Francis Chan says, He calls us to trust him so completely that we are unafraid to put ourselves in situations where we will be in trouble if he doesn't come through. Isn't that incredible truth? God calls us to trust him so completely that we are unafraid to put ourselves in situations where we will be in trouble if he doesn't come through. Nehemiah so has wept, so has prayed, so has been intimate with God that he wants to be put in a position where God has to come through or he's going to be in trouble. And this is when God is so abundant, as we talked about last week, when we hold him to his promises. Now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. Ladies, if the project is his, he has more abundance than you can imagine. Well, we see that the spiritual work is painful. We're going to wear it on our face. But it's also problematic. Nehemiah 2, 10 through 12. But when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, ser- servant of the king, heard this, it displeased them, great, displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one in which I rode. So now we see again the evil and the good. Here we've got this displeased greatly, and yet he carries on. We see this problem. Sambalot was the governor of Samaria. Tobiah was probably the governor of Amnon, Ammon, and so they're surrounding the area there. These guys have authority and power. Tobiah, interestingly, is a Jewish name. It means God is good. Isn't that interesting? He is actually an Ammonite. We're ancestors from Lot. If you know your Genesis, Lot was the nephew of Abraham, God's chosen one, called out. And Lot found himself in Sodom and Gomorrah, if you remember that. And only he and his daughters escaped when the angel of the Lord told them to flee, that Sodom and Gomorrah were going to be torched. And uh, unfortunately, Lot's wife looked back, turned into salt. And so now... Lot is stuck in a cave with his daughters. That's all that has survived Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, his daughters decide they want children. So they get their father drunk, and they have an incestuous relationship with him. These are the Ammonites. So they are technically Jewish, but they have an incestual origin, and they hate the true Israelites. So he has this name, and I think this is interesting because I see problems for us when we begin to restore and rebuild and revive come from those outside the church and those who think they're inside the church. Problems come, and sometimes they'll come from the sources that we thought should help us, should be supportive of us. But God has a plan. Nehemiah continues on his journey to Jerusalem. God had put into his heart what he wanted for Jerusalem, and two hateful, malicious bozos are not going to stop him. He is going to push through. He is going to keep moving. Oh, ladies, don't we need this? Whether it's from those who are within the church or think they're within the church or those who are not, who are outside, when they say boo to us, we need to not run. There are so many who will tell us that it can't be done, that the rebuilding, the revival, 
The restoration that needs to happen in your life or in the church can't happen. And we have got to say, no, our God has given us a plan. He has given us promises. He is our covenant God. He has told us that when we return to him and we repent, he can do the work. And he will do abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine. God's plan can be trusted. Nehemiah knew through his intimate prayer time that he could move patiently. He didn't have to prove anything. It's interesting that he waits three days. Lots of theories on that. All we know is he doesn't have to prove anything. Sometimes God lays upon our heart work he wants to do in our lives, and we think we've got to shout it from the rooftops and prove to everyone that it's from God. Ladies, we don't have to do that. If it's his work, he's going to do it. He will do it in his timetable, and we can trust him. Lewis Berry Schaefer says, When led by the Spirit, the child of God must be as ready to wait as to go as prepared to be silent as to speak. He took time to be quiet, to gather the information he needed, to wait. And lastly, and I think this is the, 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 the really huge part of this passage, spiritual work is persecuted. It heats up. They're not just greatly displeased and intent on hurting Israel, but they're going to do more. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. This is Nehemiah. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalot, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and they despised us. And they said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Incredible. Nehemiah inspects the damage. He finds the devastation. It's so bad he can't even get his donkey all the way around. We think he went only about halfway around this one to two mile wall. The rubble is so thick his beast can't get through it. They think that these huge boulders had rolled into the Kidron Valley, into this ravine. It's a big work. It's a huge work. And Nehemiah not only has a damaged wall and burned gates, but he has damaged people. They're apathetic. They're defeated. This work had begun a hundred years earlier, almost a hundred years earlier, under Zerubbabel. It took 15 years for them to clean up and rebuild that temple. And when the second group of exiles came to continue the work to clean up the city and to rebuild the city, the work was stopped by the very king that Nehemiah serves. So he's facing damaged walls and damaged people who are apathetic. And I think there's an incredible truth here. In the restoring and the rebuilding and the revival of our lives, ladies, we have got to go into the night and take a good look at the damage. There cannot be restoration. There cannot be rebuilding. There cannot be revival if we don't face reality. We've got to get out of fantasy land. And we've got to see it as it is. I've been walking with a um, gal who's recently given her life to the Lord and has just in little bits and pieces kind of been confessing to me a drinking problem. 
And so we talked a little bit more last week. And by the grace of God, she has done the work to take a really hard look at her life. And she is now able to say, I am an alcoholic. She has to go out into the night. She had to face the reality of the damage. Ladies, God is calling us, no matter how much it hurts, to face it. Some of us need to go out into the night, into the dark places, into the sin that we either need to confess or come clean of, to the habits, to the pain, to the resentment, the unforgiveness, the abuse, whatever it is that is in our life that has caused these walls to tumble and these gates to be burned. Some of us have got to do the work and go quietly before the Lord alone and let him show us the reality of the damage. If we don't face it, we will continually be accused of it by the one who does know about it, and that is our enemy. We must face it. So when the devil, the accuser of the brethren, throws it in our face, we can say, I'm aware of that. My God will make me prosper. See, there's a power. Nehemiah is able to tell The people, God has already been at work. Look what the king has done. Ladies, I promise you that if you go into the night and you face the reality of some walls that are broken or some gates that are burned, areas of your life that are damaged, that are hurt, choices you've made, choices that have been made to you, I promise you that if you take a look at it and you begin the work, you will find that God was already at work before you ever picked up a block. I have seen this in my own life over and over again. Nehemiah issues a challenge to the people of God, and he includes himself. God has a plan. He's already been at work. Here is what he's done. Let us rise up. And the testimony is so powerful of what the king has done that they say, yes, their arms are strengthened. Oh, we need testimonies, don't we? We need to tell each other. We not only need to go into the night and find our areas and be rebuilt, but then we need to come out of the closet and tell people about it. We need to tell people about how God has restored us. We need to let him know... Let the church know those in it especially who are new and are stuck that God is enough Ray Steadman in the commentary that you just read he says if you set out to change something in your life for the better now I added this defined by God for his glory and honor to remove disgrace I think we need to put that in there you have the full authority of the throne of God behind you you may proceed with confidence that the unseen very real power of God is backing you up Now, don't miss this part that I think we need to stick in there because of our Western mindset. If you set out to change your life for the better, better meaning defined by God as better, for his glory and honor, and to remove disgrace. We just want to change our lives because we think we deserve better or we'd like it to be better. We're not necessarily going to be backed by the power of God. If it's God's call, his glory, and not about us, that's when the power is there. But it's work. And in this chapter and throughout Nehemiah, we're going to see the word work over a dozen times. Now, I don't know if that depresses you a little bit. It actually should excite you because so much good happens in work. See, we don't learn anything in Disneyland, do we? Except maybe how not to parent. (laughs) (laughs) And even that, we have to put into practice once we leave Disneyland, don't we? I think about if the ducks could write a book, huh? I had an incredible blessing 
um, given to me a couple nights ago. And I pray that this is a testimony that God will use to strengthen your hands to build, and it's the purpose of me sharing it. I was on the phone with my mom, and my mom has, um, in, just the, in just recent years, really had her faith come alive. Um, and she was sharing with me some of the things that she's learning. And she said, you've broken the cycle, Patty. She said she was sharing with her, she's within the Catholic Church, sharing with her priest about my life. And my children, she said, you've broken the cycle. And she made a comment about forgiveness, and then she moved on, and she needed to leave, and I had to go. And as I was running and praying, the Lord said, you have to write her. She needs to hear from you. That you didn't break any cycle, I did. See, my mom and I had a very, very painful relationship. And when my first, second, second child was born, first daughter, my mom did not have this kind of relationship with my brothers, just me. And so when my daughter was born and they put her on my chest, I was very fearful because I knew my mom did what she learned from her mom and her mom did what she learned from her mom. And I knew that I would do the same thing to my daughter. And as they laid her on my chest, Aubrey, the Lord said to me, you will break the cycle. You have me. So I had to write my mom yesterday, and I had to tell her about that experience in the hospital. And I needed her to know that I didn't break anything. God did. And that, of course, there's been forgiveness. She needed to hear that from me, too. But, ladies, it was a lot of work. I can tell you, it has been a lot of work. And it began with forgiving. And it continued with humility and recognizing how sinful I am and how I could do far worse to a child than anything was ever done to me. It's a lot of work. It's not a day in Disneyland to break cycles. But when we do the work, God refines our passion. He reveals our faith. He builds our strength. And he gives a testimony to what the church is and what the church can be. My mom didn't write me back. I couldn't do this on the phone because I knew it would fall apart. So she didn't email me back for almost 24 hours. It was early this morning. I finally got an email back. And thank you, Jesus, she heard what I said. She got it, that it's the testimony. It's what God can do. So can we agree there's work to do? There is not one of you in here that doesn't have work to do. I have work to do. If we're actually in a good season, then by golly, we better come alongside those who aren't. There is work to do for the glory of God. This kingdom is to invade, this heavenly kingdom is to invade this kingdom to evidence what God can do in the restoring and the rebuilding and the revival of lives and in his community. We have to say we've had enough of the disgrace of the shame, of the affliction. Disgrace has ruled the day long enough. Evil has had the victory long enough. We will strengthen our hands for the good work. But let me tell you, ladies, the, 
The glory of God has got to be our motive, not our fixed lives. If your motive for being restored, rebuilt, or revived, or to be a part of the church's restoring, rebuilding, and revived is for you, you will lose heart, you will grow weary, and you will not reap a harvest. But if it is for the glory of God, then the kingdom of God, the power of God, the Son of God is your strength. And he can do abundantly beyond all that you can ask or imagine. So why do you want restoration? Why do you want rebuilding? In the broken relationships and in the the difficulties in your life, what is the purpose? Is it so the glory of God can be revealed or is it so you can have a happy day and say a good time was had by all? Motive separates the Disney ducks from the kingdom crusaders. Nehemiah appeals to the people as kingdom crusaders. This is for the glory of God. This isn't just to fix your house so that you can live in a clean place. This is for the glory of God to be revealed, for the name of God to no longer be in disgrace. Nehemiah challenges their apathy, appeals to their patriotism to Jerusalem. This is the city where God is to dwell, where the entire world is to see that God is awesome, that he can restore, he can rebuild. He is alive and he loves his people and they are his treasured possession. And today in this passage, we are being challenged the same way. God is appealing to us to be restored, to be rebuilt, to be revived, to be a part of this great work in his church for the glory of his name. He's appealing to our heavenly citizenship. If we understood what our heavenly citizenship really means and where we are headed, we will pick up a brick and we will get to work. We will want to be a part of his restoration, his rebuilding and revival because we don't want those around us to go into a Christless eternity. We want them to see his glory revealed in our lives and in the lives of this church. So they grabbed a brick for the glory of God. Leslie Newbigin says the church lives in the midst of history as a sign, instrument, and a foretaste of the reign of God. That's why we're here. And again, so Israel grabs a brick for the glory of God. (laughs) But because it's a spiritual work, we'll see this last bit, they're going to be persecuted. Pain, problem, persecution. Sambalot, Tobiah, and now we've got a third bozo, Geshem. Now they're surrounded. We've got governors all around Jerusalem. They're completely pinned in. And they're jeering them, which means they are irreligiously mocking them. They're using the word rebel, meaning you're declaring war on the king. We can get you stopped. Not only that, we can get you killed. This is real persecution. They're telling them, we're going to trump up the case against you to get this thing stopped just like we did. They're going to pull back the playbook of Ezra 4 and what they did before. We know how to work this king. We're going to get this work stopped. But Nehemiah doesn't rely on the king. He doesn't say, oh, look at my paperwork. Oh, you know, I was the cupbearer. I'm his best friend. He just relies on God because he knows who holds the hearts of kings. Nehemiah can confidently say to these leaders, this is none of your business, which is essentially a paraphrase of what Nehemiah said. You have no right, no claim. This has nothing to do with you. Ladies, we have three enemies that surround us. We have our flesh, we have the world, and we have the devil. 
in our personal restoration process, rebuilding, revival, and in the process we might be in of helping others being restored, rebuilt, and revived, these three enemies are declaring war on us. Our flesh, the world, and the devil. Our flesh will mock us will make the restoration painful. Our flesh will say, this is too hard. Don't do it. Take another drink. Forget it. It's too hard. Escape. Go to fantasy land. We're going to have to die to our flesh. We're going to have to die to our desire to be a duck in Disneyland. But ladies, we're not on our own. And if we do it on our own, we're toast. We have the provision of God to declare war on our flesh. Even more than the Israelites have, we have the Son of God who lives within us. We have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. So that the truth of Colossians 1.27 can be revealed. To them God chose, God's people, to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You can declare war on your flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can crucify it. And our world, the second enemy, will mock us, threaten us, make the process of rebuilding problematic. You can't do that. That's too hard. That's never been done. Do you know what the success rate is for that? You know, they're going to give us their wisdom. You know, Oprah will tune, you know, pipe in. We'll have all kinds of people telling us that can't be done, this can't be done. And by the way, you should have done it this way. It's going to be tough. We're going to have to persevere with God's plan. Rebuilding is problematic. We can't long for shade under perfectly manicured bushes. G.K. Chesterton said, Jesus promised his disciples three things, that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. The world doesn't want you to change. The world does not want your marriage to be restored. The world does not want your lives to be rebuilt. The world does not want revival. And it will give you, it will throw at you its very best shot outside the church and unfortunately even from within. But we have the plan of God evidenced in Jesus who because of his death and resurrection, he is the yes to every promise God has given us. Remember last week, our daddy who has promised us. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will we not also with him freely, freely, freely give us all things for this process? For all the promises of God find their yes in him. 2 Corinthians 1.20 And lastly, we have a very real enemy who will persecute us to prevent trial. In this country, it comes more in the form of insults and accusations and lies. And sometimes it's very real warfare. In other places, it it becomes true persecution of being imprisoned and killed for our faith. We have an enemy who hates revival. He does not want that city built. He does not want the church to be a light. We must stand firm and not run off to Tomorrowland or Fantasyland. We can stand firm, and we've done everything else. We can continue to stand firm, as Paul says in Ephesians, because we have the armor of God, which is Jesus Christ. We have the protection of God in Jesus, whose death and resurrection disarmed the evil. Do we still battle it? Yes, but victory is ours. 
want to hear a louder one than that. Let's go. Amen. He has declared war and won. Evil has no authority, no claim. It's none of evil's business. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Colossians 2.15 And this is why Jesus can say to Peter, On this rock, the gospel, Christ in you, the hope of glory, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Don't listen to the liar. Don't listen to the accuser. Do not harm anyone that can hurt the body. Fear the one who can harm your soul. Trust that God has done the work. And because of Jesus Christ, we have every victory. Stand firm. And when you've done everything else to stand firm, stand firm again. Raise up others to pray with you. Do the battle. It's real. The enemy is real. But the victory is Jesus. We don't battle for victory. We battle from a place of victory. It's a spiritual thing. We're not ducks in Disneyland. And I pray we don't want to be. We're crusaders for the kingdom. Called to embrace pain. Called to embrace the problems. Called to even embrace the persecution. Because our God will make us prosper. This word prosper means advance. Move forward. Continue the work. He who began a good work in you will continue until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for ducks in Disneyland and the reality and the way that you speak through all of nature and all around us and remind us that this world is not our home. That we are crusaders for your kingdom, invading this place for your glory. And we thank you and praise you that the restoration, the rebuilding, and the revival you're doing in our lives and in your church, that you let us get to be a part of it. You let us get to be a part of evidencing your glory. Father, may we embrace pain. May we embrace the problems. May we embrace the persecution. May we be honored that you count us worthy to be a part of your great work. Strengthen our arms for the work. And thank you that you are the one that will make us prosper. In Jesus' name.